0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation 19. I'm going to cover verses 11 through 21. Jesus is going to conquer on a white horse. We're in that part of Revelation now where we talk more about the victorious establishment of the new covenant as opposed to the destruction of God's enemies. We still have some destruction of God's enemies, but it's a minor refrain now. It's mostly victory, 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 dominion, dominion, dominion. Our context is this in the first ten verses of Revelation 19, we had the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I submitted to you was the establishment of the new covenant, the celebration of of which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That happened in the first advent, not the second advent, and it's accomplished every time we have communion with, with Jesus spiritually. So we start now in verse 11, Revelation 19, and I saw, that's John, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Well, we know who that is. That's Jesus. He's riding on a white horse, which is a symbol of Christ's victory and dominion. A white horse is a war horse, beautiful horse. The white horse is also mentioned at the first seal, Revelation 6, 2. I looked, John looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him. The bow is for fighting warfare. The crown was symbolizes victory. And he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. And that's talking about Jesus. Not the Antichrist, but Jesus. Now, this judging and waging war is not talking about some end-time battle at the end of the world, not at the second coming. John is describing the progress of the gospel throughout the world. How do we know that? Well, if we drop down to verse 15, we read this. A sharp sword came from his mouth, came from Jesus' mouth, so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. So there's conquering rhetoric, but it comes from a sharp sword from his mouth. That's the living word of God. So this is the progress of the gospel as people, as the nations all over the world are converted by the gospel. Now Jesus is said to judge and wage war in this verse, that John saw Jesus in righteousness on that white horse, judging and waging war. That's spiritual warfare. Now you could argue that Jesus is waging war against apostate Jerusalem, but we've already had seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, most of which poured out judgment on the apostate land of Israel. That seems to be over now. Now the emphasis is is turning to establishing the gospel all over the world. So I think that the judging and waging war is probably spiritual warfare against people who don't believe. Now when I say we're turning to establishing the gospel all over the world, that's not entirely true. We're gonna see the lake of fire coming up and the beast, sea beast, and land beast getting thrown into it. So it's not the judgment is not entirely over with yet, but still the emphasis seems to be more now on the positive establishment of the kingdom. Now judging and waging war are symbolic of Jesus' overwhelming victory as king in the world. Here's some Old Testament passages showing Jesus' kingship in the world as we live now, which futurists don't get to enjoy because they always shove it off into the future. Psalm said me too, he, that's Jesus. Well, David is speaking to Solomon as a type of Christ. He, Christ, will judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted ones with justice. Solomon standing for Jesus. That's talking about inner Advent, 1st. To second Advent, not talking about the end of the world. Psalm ninety six, eleven through thirteen. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. Folks, that's not the end of the world millennium, that's now. He's going to judge the world now as more and more people are converted. Isaiah eleven three through 4 his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. And he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. His mouth and his lips, that emphasizes the idea that Jesus' reign will be won spiritually by his word. Not by politics, not by taking over the legal system. We're not theonomists here. We're talking about the Word of God spreading throughout the world, judging the poor righteously, executing justice for the oppressed. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will raise up a righteous branch for David. Of course, that's the branch that came out of the stump of Jesse. That's Jesus. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Judah and Israel, of course, being Old Testament terms, terms in the place of the new Israel, the church. So in his days, that's the days of Messiah, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. That's talking about the church will be saved and the church will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So there's some good news, folks. Jesus Riding on a white horse, faithful and true, judging and waging war as he conquers the world, as people bow to his name and bow to his authority. Revelation 19:12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. This, of course, is talking about Jesus on the back of that white horse. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Now, his eyes are a flame of fire. That reminds us of Revelation 1:14. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. Now, that refers to eyes that are piercing, that can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you'll think about a flame of fire, if you picture in your mind somebody with eyes burning like fire, they they know what's going on. They can pierce your thoughts. On his head are many diadems. Of course, a diadem is a symbol of sovereignty and dominion. It's a crown. And he has a name written on him. Well, the name written on him. There's actually two names. We drop down to verse, the next verse, verse 13, and we see the first name is the Word of God. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now I would assume this name was written on Jesus' forehead. So that's the first name, the Word of God, the Word which expresses God. In the beginning was the Word. We don't know what God is like, God wants to tell us, so he expresses himself with the Word, with his Son. We look at the Son, we understand the Son, we then gain understanding of the Father, the Word of God. Now, there's another name written on Jesus, and that name is the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. We drop down to verse 16 in this chapter, Revelation 19, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, that name could have been written on his robe And the robe was on his thigh, so it was only written once. The English is a little bit confusing there. And he has a name written on his robe and is on his thigh, and on his thigh. And so you think, well, maybe he's got his name written twice. I don't think so. I think the name was written on his robe, which is on his thigh, which also, by the way, is where the sword is kept. Another good symbol of the conquering Jesus. Now, it says he has a name written on him. Maybe the first name that's referring to the first name, the Word of God, in the next verse, and then the other name shows up later in verse 16. That's how you handle the A name when it's two names actually written on Jesus. He has a name written on him, and again, I think it's on his forehead, which no one knows except for himself. Now, this word knows in the Hebrew is interesting. According to David Chilton, quote, the New Testament use of the words for know, gnosko and in is influenced by a Hebrew idiom in which the verb to know acquires related meanings to acknowledge, to acknowledge as one's own, and to own. Now, I can give you a modern example of that. Let's say I look at a horse in someone else's pasture. I say, hey, I know that horse. He's mine. So, by knowing the horse, you're saying, I know it because he belongs to me. So, if we look at it that way, we can say the name written on Jesus is a name which no one owns except himself. In other words, no one can call himself himself. The word of God, only Jesus can. No one can call himself the king of kings, lord of lords. Only Jesus can. The word knows, no one knows the name, word of God and Lord and king of kings, lord of lords. That can't be just to cognitively know the name because we know the name. We can say it. I just told you the name. I know it. You know it. So that to have cognition of the name cannot be what it means to know. It means to own the name. Nobody can own that name. Revelation 19.13, he, that's Jesus, is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, there's two options for what, this, for what this blood on his robe might mean. The first option is it could be the blood that Christ shed for us on the cross. Now, that fits in very well with the idea that this is the first advent, not the second advent, the preaching of the gospel throughout the world. And so the blood that he died for us on the cross could be symbolized by that blood on his robe. Now, that's a good option if we believe that the book is now moving toward this, towards the establishment of the New Covenant, which I do believe it is. But it also, his robe dipped in blood, it could also mean the blood of Christ's slain enemies, namely the sea beast, the land beast, Roman Empire, the apostate Israel. I'm, I'm 50-50 on that. I can think it could go either way. We go to verse 14, Revelation 19. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, those armies in heaven are obviously Christ's church, believers. Ephesians 2, 6, Paul says this. He, referring to God, also raised us, Christians, us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. And notice in Revelation 19, 14, John says, in the armies which are in heaven, they're in the heavenly places, with Christ Jesus, who's riding on that horse. All right, so we, the church is likened to a host of armies there. they're clothed in fine linen. This shows that these armies are not angels, but they're saints, probably. We see in Revelation 198, she was given fine linen to wear bright and pure for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. The fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. So you see fine linen that stands for holiness, purity, purity, cleanliness, sin, uh, cleanliness from sin. So the church, having been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, is following Jesus, victoriously spreading the gospel all over the world. Revelation 19.15, From his, that's Jesus' mouth, comes a short sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Now from his mouth comes a sword. We see those those same two symbols in Revelation 1, verse 16. He, that's Jesus, had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. In Revelation two sixteen, we see this. So repent, otherwise I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, what does it mean, the sword coming out of a mouth? I mean, that's a strange thing to see in a vision, is it not? J. Massingberg Ford, the famous commentator on Revelation at the University of Notre Dame, says this in her famous commentary on Revelation. The sword coming from the mouth is, quote, a prophetic word which is creative and dynamic and brings to pass what it pronounces. In other words, it's the gospel. And with the gospel, he's going to strike down the nations. Now, that's just a metaphor for winning the world to Christ. It is not talking about military triumph. Jesus is not going to take over the world with armies. I don't know if theonomists believe that, but if they do, God help them. That's ridiculous. It's nonsense. It's coming the sword from his mouth. It's the word of God that conquers, not military weapons. And you say, ah, but in verse 15 it says, Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. is not a rod of iron, doesn't that show that he's going to be beating people over the head with a rod? He's going to have strong military and political authority? No. A rod of iron was merely a scepter which is a typical symbol for the rulership of a king. The king would sit on his throne and have this big, tall iron rod in his hand, except it was fancy, and, and that was a symbol that I'm the king. Nobody else can hold the scepter but me. So that's what it's talking about. He's going to be King Jesus, but not because he's hitting people over the head with a rod of iron. It is a symbol of rulership, Psalm 2.9. You will break them with an iron scepter, an iron rod. You will shatter them like pottery. Now, interesting here, in Psalm 2-9, the Hebrew for break, if you revocalize it, the Hebrew doesn't have vowels, and so people add the vowel points. But to take the same Hebrew consonants, change the vowels, and you get a Hebrew word that can be translated as rule. So it could read in Psalm 2-9, You will rule them with an iron scepter, and that fits. You will shatter them like pottery. That just means he's going to rule. It doesn't mean he's going to be sending troops in and kicking kicking people around. Revelation 12-5. She, this is the woman in the wilderness, the old Israel. At first, well, she's the old and the new Israel. When she was the old Israel, she gave birth to a son. In verse 5, Revelation 12, a male who is going to rule all nations, that's Jesus, with an iron rod, a rod of iron. Her child was called up to God to his throne. That's Jesus when he was resurrected. So he's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. All right, so we've got now Jesus ruling the, the nations with his word with the authority of a king, with a rod of iron, but we also know that the church rules with Jesus. We see that in Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. Now that's talking about the conquering Christian, the one who keeps Jesus' works. He's going to rule the nations, just like Jesus is with a rod of iron, an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery, same words that they used in that the psalmist used in Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. So, Christians will rule. Jesus is going to rule, but it's with the word that comes from his mouth. It's not my military power and politics. We go now to, well, we're still in verse 15. We see that this rulership is accompanied by God, the Father, treading the winepress, excuse me, Jesus, not God, the Father, Jesus, and he, Jesus, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Well, the winepress, now that's a easy symbol. It's a symbol of the wrath of God. The winepress owner is God trampling on the grapes that are in the winepress. The grapes are those that receive God's judgment. The grape juice that comes out of the grapes is the blood of the dying recipients of God's justice. Here's an Old Testament reference to the winepress of God. Isaiah 63 verses 2 through 3. Why are your clothes red and your garments like one who treads a winepress I trampled the winepress alone, and no one from the nations was with me. I trampled them in my anger and ground them underfoot in my fury, their blood splattered by garments, and all my clothes were stained. So the grape juice that gets on the garments when you're stomping on the grapes, that's the blood of God's enemies. God's doing the trampling there in Isaiah 63. Back in Revelation 14, verses 18, 19, and 20, we see Jesus doing the trampling on his enemies. Verse 18, Revelation 14. Yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the land, because its grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the land and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the land and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles or 200 stadia. I've already talked about that in Revelation 14. There's a lot of stuff there. But the point there is that Jesus is now trampling. That angel is Jesus. And so Jesus is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, to quote an unfortunate hymn from somebody who militarized the spiritual triumph of Jesus and judgment on his enemies. I'm not going to mention this Yankees name, but you know what I'm talking about, the battle hymn of the Republic, which I refuse to sing. Alright, so we have God and Jesus trampling out his enemies and a wine press and the blood, the grapes splattering grape juice on his robe, that creates blood on the robe. We've already mentioned that in the in the blood on the robe in a previous verse, which could be the enemies of Christ. Could be Jesus' own blood, or it could be Jesus' enemies. But at any rate, we have a symbol of judgment here. Rulership and dominion for Jesus and the church, judgment of God's enemies. Revelation is a book of encouragement for persecuted Christians. We go now to Revelation nineteen sixteen, And on his robe, on Jesus' robe, and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Of course, the thigh is the place where the sword is worn. And so he's going to win. He's got the sword coming out of his mouth. <laughs> it comes out of his mouth. He wants to wear it on his thigh. That's where he'd wear it because he's a conquering Jesus. He's a victorious Jesus. Now, the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's the ground of his coming victory. is not the result. He hasn't been proclaimed king of kings and lord of lords yet. Every knee and every bow, every knee and every tongue, every knee is not bowed and every tongue has not confessed him yet, but we're on the way. Christ's rule will be established universally on this earth. All nations will be Christianized someday. It's only a matter of time. can't happen too quick for me. It's probably going to be after I'm dead and gone, but it's going to happen. Revelation 19, 17, and 18 Then I, John, saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. So these birds, I'll take it to be vultures, are going to come in and they're going to have a great time as they look at the battlefield. See all the dead people? This is referring, I'm sure, to the destruction of Israel in AD 70, which I'm going to point out in a minute. Matthew 24, verse 28, Jesus is speaking in the Olivet Discourse, which was clearly talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, And Jesus says, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Well, the carcass is the dead city of Jerusalem, and the vultures start circling around, picking on the dead men, and horses, and kings, and commanders, and all those who sat on the horses, the free people, the slaves, the big people, the small people, everybody's getting eaten up by vultures. Now, this angel standing in the sun in mid-heaven, well, he's standing in the sun, and, and he, all the birds were flying in mid-heaven. In mid-heaven, where all this is going on, is the same place that other things happen in Revelation. In Revelation 8:13, we had an eagle or depending on the translation, an angel warned of woe coming. Revelation 8:13. I looked and I heard an eagle, or an angel, flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, "Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the land because of the remaining trumpet blast that the three angels are about to sound." So that was the last three trumpet judgments. So disaster is coming, in, says this angel in mid heaven. Then we also have an angel in mid heaven inviting the peoples of the earth to embrace the gospel. That's in Revelations. Revelation 14:6 Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the land of the earth to every nation, tribe, language and people. Now here in Revelation 19 we have an angel standing in midheaven standing in the sun announcing judgment and of course that judgment is the prelude to the spread of the gospel. I said we were kind of transitioning to the spread of the gospel and victory of the new covenant, but we're not quite finished with judgment yet. Now, this imagery of the Great Supper of God, it comes from Ezekiel, referring to Israel's victory over Gog. I'm not going to talk about what Gog is. People split all over the place what Ezekiel was prophesying about in Ezekiel 38 and 39 about Gog. I have my favorite interpretations, but that's beyond the scope of this audio. When I get to Ezekiel, I'll talk about it then. Actually, Gog shows up at the end of Revelation again, too, which, and we'll talk about it then. But just look at the imagery here. Ezekiel thirty nine seventeen 17-20, Son of man, this is what the Lord God says. Tell every kind of bird and all the wild animals, assemble and come. Gather from all around to my sacrificial feast that I am slaughtering for you, a great feast on the mountains of Israel. You will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the earth's princes, rams, lambs, male goats, and all the fattened bulls of Bashan. You will eat fat until you are satisfied and drink blood until you are drunk at my sacrificial feast that I have prepared for you. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, of mighty men and all the warriors. This is the declaration of the Lord God. And we'll see, that's obviously where John got that imagery from or where Jesus got it from. It's talking about the same great supper of God in Ezekiel. It almost sounds exactly like what John says in Revelation 9:17 through 18 Now, here we need to point out that futurists will say that the victory over God will be the great tribulation at the end of time a speculation, and they say the Great Tribulation is the Great Supper of God. Of course, the Great Tribulation, as Jesus mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, was talking about the Tribulation coming up uh, during the G- Jewish war, that three-and-a-half-year war from 66 to 70, three-and-a-half years of great, of great Tribulation. That's what he was referring to. And so here, the Gog, well, Gog is not mentioned here, the Great Supper of God, I would agree with the futurists that it is referring to the Great Tribulation. I would disagree with, with the futurist as to when the Great Tribulation was. It was at the first advent, right before 8070, between 66 to 87, three and a half years of Great Tribulation during the Jewish War. Not a speculated-upon future Great Tribulation for which there is no evidence. Now, notice that these birds are going to eat all these commanders and kings and riders and horses and riders on the horses. The basic curse of the covenant is to be eaten by birds of prey. You know the famous cursing chapter in Deuteronomy 28. Here's verse 26 of that chapter. Your corpses will be food. If you, In other words, if you disobey this covenant, Israelites, your corpses will be food for all the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth, with no one to scare them away. So the curses of God's law to those who disobeyed that law come into pass on Israel. But it's not just Israel. All of God's enemies are completely removed. The land is purged from the uncleanliness of their dead bodies. And that includes Roman and apostate Israel enemies. We'll see Rome is included in Revelation 19, 20 and 21, which we're just about to get to. So now I turn to Revelation 19, verses 19 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Ah, oh, there's a big battle going on, and Jesus and his army, that's Christians, Jesus and Christians are fighting some nasty people. The beast, that's the Roman Empire, the kings of the earth, those are the constituent kingdoms of the Roman Empire and their armies. Verse 20, and the beast, that's the sea beast, the Roman Empire was seized, and with him the false prophet, the false prophet is the land beast, who built an image, and there, an image to the sea beast, to said, Israel, worship uh, Rome, we have no king but Caesar. Suck up the Rome, help us persecute the Christians' Rome. And so the false prophet is the land beast, Israel, apostate Israel. So the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet apostate Israel, who performed the signs in his presence. Remember when we were talking about that, I think it's Revelation 13, the signs, the false prophet was doing miraculous signs uh, in order to get people to follow after the sea beast, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast of those who had to follow the sea beast in order to, to to do have economic activity to even function in the Roman Empire. And those who worshipped his image, The, the image, remember the land beast made an image, an idol of the sea beast. And so people who are Jews, who sucked up to the Roman Empire, completely turned their back on God and decided that their sustenance is coming from the Roman Empire, those are those who worshipped his image. All right, so we got the sea beast and apostate Israel and all those who followed them. Verse 21, and the, excuse me, these two, the sea beast and the land beast were thrown alive into the lake of fire, that's hell, which burns with brimstone. Brimstone being that sulfur that you find at the brim of a volcano. That's why they call it brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword. The rest being the king, the constituent kings of the Roman Empire. Were killed with a sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Now David Chilton says, that the nations of the Roman Empire the nations of the world are killed with the sword means they're converted by the sword because it is killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him beside on the horse. Well, that's an interesting idea, but I think Chilton's off off base there because it says all the birds will fill with their flesh. It doesn't sound to me like they're getting converted. It sounds like they're getting eaten up by birds of prey, by vultures. So I disagree with Chilton on that. It's a minor point. All the birds were filled with their flesh. No mention of being thrown into the lake of fire, these rest, the kings of the earth. John explicitly says in these three verses that the sea beast and the false prophet and the land beast are thrown into the lake of fire. and that's the end of them. He doesn't mention the constituent kings and the rest were killed with a the sword. They're killed, but it doesn't say they were thrown into the fire. And I just had this idea, well, maybe just John did mention it. But when they're killed, boom, that's what happens when apostate people die They get thrown into the lake of fire. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now finished with Revelation chapter 19, and our next audio will take up the millennium. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, Satan is bound during the millennium. This, of course, is one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, and so I'm looking forward to it. I like controversial passages in the Bible. So I hope you stay tuned for that, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.